This is a Federal News Network podcast. Few federal management challenges seem as intractable as the need for better cybersecurity. The solar winds incident proved that latest evidence. Pretty much everyone agrees now the Biden administration has mostly filled out the top cybersecurity positions. For what should happen next, we turn to a leading congressional voice for cybersecurity, New York Congressman John Katko. Congressman Katko, good to have you back. Uh, great to be back, my friend. So there are people in place. Uh, we have several people there. Chris Inglis is the, now the National Cyber Director, and Newberger is uh, Deputy National Security for Cyber Director, and so on. What are you expecting these people to do? What should they be doing together going ahead? Well, first of all, I'm thrilled that there is a National Cyber Director again, because we hadn't had one for quite a while, and the previous administration did not fill that. At our urging, they had that. And I really view it as they're all a, a team. You have the uh, DOD component, dot .mil, you have the Intel community with Newberger, and then you have the CISA role. And I think all three play a critical role. But, you know, the person overseeing all three is the cyber director. And so to have the cyber director overseeing the entire playing field is critically important, both offensive, defensive, and Intel. And so I'm very happy that the Biden administration made these moves. And going forward, I'm, I'm very hopeful that the exchange of information between the .gov, the .mil, and the Intel community is better than ever. And Newberger has a unique opportunity to find ways to improve that sharing of what Intel gets with the others in a, in a proper manner. So I'm excited about the possibilities of what this could bring for us. And I think going forward, it's going to be very important that CISA is treated as an equal and is not the ugly stepchild. It's a younger agency, but it's a very important one for the .gov domain. And so I think having all three on an equal footing and working together is going to be very, very important. Yeah, and I think that Chris Inglis, as the National Cyber Director, he was number two, I believe, in the intelligence community. And so he's something of a self-effacing kind of guy. He's glad to work quietly, you know, in the background, which might serve effectiveness rather than trying to get the spotlight all the time. Yeah, self-effacing and senior levels of government in Washington don't always go together. So I think that's a wonderful trait for him to have in that position. And that's exactly what he needs, because he needs to instill the team concept in this. It's much like what we did after 9-11, you know, had all these disparate agencies were developing information from the intel community on the bad guys and law enforcement, and the information wasn't being shared. And we fixed that after 9-11. We, you know, we need to do a better job now of doing that and getting the information to all three of them. That's going to be another task. But I'm really excited about the possibilities, and I'm looking forward to working with all of them. Now, the Government Accountability Office, the arm of Congress, just, you know, once again for the umpteenth time, put cybersecurity on its high-risk list. Nothing new there. But this is getting to be kind of an old story here. What, in your estimation, are the agencies just not quite doing that they should be doing to get this thing past the high-risk list and actually getting better cybersecurity? Yeah, I think one of the key role, again, is CISA. It's a recurring theme with me, but CISA is a very important part of that because what you have is you have more than 100 different agencies, and some have a higher competency than others with respect to their cyber capabilities, and that's a problem. And there's no real central repository or central director for those agencies, and that's why I think it's really important that CISA plays that prominent role as a quarterback in the .gov domain. Just like DOD is the quarterback for the .mil, and, and Newberger is going to be the quarterback for the Intel community. CISA needs to elevate its role, and CISA needs to be that repository. And that's why I've really advocated it's got to be a much bigger agency. I'm a Republican. I'm conservative. I'm for fiscal constraint. But it's clear that CISA needs to be uh, much better funded. And I think it's going to be a matter of a few years, and it'll, it'll be a $5 billion agency, and rightfully so, because 
cybersecurity, as you mentioned, is so important, and we've got to make sure it's properly handled. Well, with respect to the bill that you've introduced there, uh, the majority is willing to spend trillions on lots of other things, so it seems like there's probably going to be some money for little old CISA in there, too. Yeah, you, you would hope so, my friend. And one of the things we need to do, and I, I think we've seen some of that in the legislation, and then it's a promising sign, but these agencies, all of them, need to continue to prioritize the modernization of their IT infrastructure with security in mind, not just getting the new bells and whistles, but the better product. You know, they got to modernize their infrastructure and understand that security should be at the forefront of what they're doing. Security should go hand in hand with performance, I think. We're speaking with Republican John Katko. He's ranking member of the House Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, Infrastructure Protection, and Innovation. And kind of a parallel effort has been brewing at the Defense Department the CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. The administration is examining it. Uh, This was started again under the Trump administration. What's your sense that that will flower into something really operational and regular on the uh, supply chain front at some point? Well, there's a number of uh, vendor certification risk judgment regimes in various stages of development across federal government and DOD, CMMC that you just mentioned, and the Federal Acquisition Security Council garner a lot of the headlines. I think working them together to ensure that these regimes accomplish their goals of actually reducing risk is critically important. The certification of certifications probably isn't the path forward, but neither is the existing patchwork approach. So you may have seen that I conducted oversight over CISA earlier this year demanding to get more clarity from the agency about how it's going to fold software assurance considerations into its risk management supporting the task. So uh, that's kind of a step, I think, in the right direction regarding that. So it sounds like you're saying maybe a little simplified approach to all of this, because in CMMC, there's quite a panoply of organizations that impinge on it. You almost need a diagram to figure out how that program yeah. works. Right. And that in and of itself is a problem, right? And so just basically having reciprocity between DOD and DHS is going to be really important. And I think in simplifying that process and streamlining. And that's why, like going back to the CISA and their approach over the agencies, that's why you need to streamline that thing. You need to have that quarterback. People need to have defined roles on the team, and that I think it's really important. And getting back to the agency level, you mentioned IT modernization and also CISA that would have some influence over what agencies do. Anything else you could think of? I mean, we've got these CIOs, we've got these CISOs, we've got chief technology officers. There's lots of C officers now in agencies, data, you name it. But it seems like that's not quite in gear on on this whole front. Right. Again, it's really just having more centralized approach to it, number one, and then defining the lines of how that centralized approach works is going to be critically important. And I think you just mentioned that there's a bunch of these different cyber aspects of every agency. And I think with guidance, we can get them to a point where the roles are better defined and and the chain of command is better defined because that's going to be very important. And you mentioned also the modernization. Now there is a billion dollars in that TMF, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's really, you know, 1% of the $100 billion the government spends now on IT, and that includes cybersecurity. And there's another $500 million proposed anyway in the so-called skinny budget that we have from the administration. Do you believe those funding levels are correct? And how would you hold agencies accountable? for spending it in a way that furthers the objective of better cybersecurity? Well, is it adequate? No. Is it enough? No. But is it a step in the right direction? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But then it goes back to what we were saying before. When you're doing your acquisition, you can't just think about modernizing your IT infrastructure. You've got to think about the security components. And that security component is going to cost a lot of money, and it's going to cost changing in the way you're thinking about running your IT systems. And so 
again, it, it comes to uh, having a game plan that people understand and that people can execute. And right now, sometimes I think that game plan is very patchwork at best, and we need to streamline that. That's one of the things we're doing. You know, I keep talking about my five pillars, and when I talk about everybody, five pillars of cybersecurity, all we're talking about in this interview is consistent with that. We need to rethink the fragmented approach, and obviously we need to uh, understand the nature and extent of third-party risks. We need to actually reduce the risk through certification regimes instead of just trying perfunctory compliance exercises. Uh, gone are the days where we're just working to get patches. That's not what we need to do now. Software assurance and development can be critically important. And then the last thing we haven't really talked about today is, is whacking the bad guys when they have these cyber intrusions, especially China and Russia. And I'm glad to see what the, the administration did with that recently. So against that overlay, the five pillars I just articulated was what we're talking about today. And all those things need to be implemented. And it's going to cost money. Yeah. And uh, the payback mechanism from the TMF, would you be willing to say, well, maybe we don't really need that? If something costs more to do correctly, like cybersecurity, maybe the payback mechanism for the TMF is not the way to go. Well, uh, that remains to be seen. And uh, right now, I just think getting the proper funding to start is and seeing how much that can get us is going to be very important. Republican John Katko is ranking member of the House Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, Infrastructure Protection and Innovation. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm glad to be here. I've enjoyed it very much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees, Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. 
Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, led This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, I think you're going to love Viator. If you haven't heard, Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. They've got everything from simple tours to extreme adventures, all the cool and interesting stuff in between as well. Well, this year, my wife and kids are making one of my bucket list trips come true. We're going to Sun Valley. 
So we're going to fly to Sun Valley, and I tell you, the thought of bringing skis, poles, boots, snowboards, everything overwhelming. But that's where Viator came in. They made this incredibly easy. I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom, Viator arranges a first-class experience, custom ski, snowboard, and boot fittings, and tickets delivered right to the condo. It's pretty amazing. Experiences are what we love most about travel. They create these long-lasting moments and make memories that will last a lifetime. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator.